Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. and welcome to Nightlight. We have, as always, Ken Quiethawk to thank for that amazing intro. He, is, uh, he can be found at nativestorytellers.com and he and his wife have an amazing practice of being Native American storytellers and it's a talent and it's a gift and it's something that everyone should be aware of and, and experience at some point in time because otherwise it'll get lost in the, in the clouds of time and, and it's a precious gift, and it does give us another look at history. That said, tonight Mark has an amazing show planned for us, and I am so excited. He has a phenomenal gentleman on with us, and we're going to be listening to his music, his life, and um, as much magic as he can spread on the, on the waves. So I'm going to pull Mark on. Evening, Mark. How are you doing? I'm fine. How, how is <laughs> everything in Connecticut with the approaching <laughs> snowstorm or sleet, whatever you have going on? It sounds pretty oh, bad. It's, yeah, it's here. It's bad. Uh, it, it, it's cold. Okay. <laughs> I right, am keep, so excited about tonight's spring. show. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I, I, am so, I have been looking forward to this show for weeks. Um I can't tell you how excited I am, I, and I'm I'm so touched and honored that that uh, your guest is is with us tonight. Yeah, and tell us about yeah, it. This, yeah, uh, this is uh, two out of the three shows uh, are uh, musical themed shows this week. So uh, I'm gonna keep keep checking, uh, you know, Barbara DeLong dot com for all these shows we have uh coming up uh, uh you know the one tomorrow is going to be a live show from three to five p.m eastern with uh the legendary arlen roth so you know we have all kinds of stuff uh going on but um you know sunday we had a special show with uh joanna Summerscales, and she was uh the producer of the widely acclaimed CD Eclectia, 
and tonight we have one of the many stellar musicians from Eclectia joining us. Uh, if you have not heard the CD yet, uh, Merle Fankhauser contributed Calling from a Star, but all the listeners know him from his signature song, Wipeout. Uh, Merle pioneered surf rock and has had an astonishing career as a lead guitarist and singer-songwriter. Uh, Merle has uh, been the host of uh, the Tiki Lounge TV show for nearly two decades. He's the host of his own radio show, uh, which airs in the Central California coast area. Uh, he does a once-a-month YouTube show with veteran ufologist Bill Forte as his producer, and he recently released his long-awaited autobiography, Calling from a Star. So uh, that's a little bit about our uh, famous guest. So uh, welcome, Merle. How are you? I'm doing good here on the California Central Coast, Mark. It's a little chillier than we have ever experienced. We don't usually get as cold as as it's been lately. It's been down into the 30s and one night even 27, and I'm just two miles here from the beach. So the weather patterns are changing. Okay. Okay. Um, I don't. Is that the El Nino? It doesn't have anything to do with El Nino. If you really want to get into it, it's due to the poles changing, which they huh. say has already changed thirty-five percent over a number of years, and now every year the poles are changing a little bit more, and it's goofing up people's gps because the magnetic field isn't in the same place and it's changing the weather belts and it has nothing to do hmm. with global warming it's it's uh, it's not related to fossil fuel it's actually that the earth is still going through its evolutionary process and the poles are changing a little bit every year Okay. It's, uh, it snowed on Maui yesterday. My oh, wow. drummer friend called me up and he said, Merle, you won't believe it. There's snow on my car in, in my front yard. And it was 40 degrees. Oh. He's lived there for 40 years and it's never been that cold there. So that would tell you that something's happening. <laughs> okay. But... Um... Yeah, that actually works into one of your uh, lyrics. I, you know, wanted to talk about it at at some point. Uh, you know, from uh, calling from a star, you, you wrote. Uh, you, know, you read my science fiction lived on science fact. Uh, you know, we're seeing you know all, all this science fiction. Stuff actually uh, hap- you know, becoming true. You're so, exactly yeah. right, Mark. Yeah, so it's you know, a little prophetic message in your lyrics, but you know, uh, you know we we can get to that in a little bit. Um, but yeah, you know, we we want to uh, 
continue the discussion with Eclectia. It's really a fantastic CD, and you know, you know, we had the producing side of the, the CD a couple days ago, and you know, tonight we're going to get uh, some, some of the musical uh, aspects of you know, uh, putting a CD together. So, um, you know, what was the concept behind the CD? Well, the whole concept, as you know, Joanna Summerscales, the producer of Eclectia, who you just mentioned, this was her brainchild, and she's had a popular uh, radio show in England for years, and I've been on it, I think, about three times, and I met her, oh, probably three years ago. And uh, she she started telling me about this idea she had about a year and a half ago and how she wanted to put it together, and she was contacting all of these bands from the U.S., Canada, and U.K., and she was looking for bands that felt their music was influenced or inspired by ETs or UFOs. And luckily, she met Dougie Dugnan, who is an excellent engineer, besides being an artist and a vocalist himself. And uh, he helped her get all of these tracks together and assembled them and mastered them. And they have it out, uh, you know, electronically at a number of sites. But I've now made uh, an amount of CDs with the cover and everything, and I'm selling some of those. And uh, if you you want a physical CD, I've been sending them out. I sent one to you. I've been sending them to DJs all over the United States, and she gave me the okay to sell a few of them. So I have them for uh, $28.50. It's a two-CD set uh, that's postpaid. And, um, you know, it's it's really something because, like she said, she has sound bites in between the music from the various different musicians uh, mm-hmm. telling the story of what inspired them to write their particular song. So it's really <laughs> a unique thing, and I don't think it's ever been done before the way she did it. So if you want something really different, I urge everybody to get one. And the cover itself, Mark, is really something what they did, they did a parody of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club, the Beatles cover of their uh-huh. LP. And down where the Beatles were standing on their cover, they have three gray aliens. And then all of the people in the background are either musicians that are on the CD or ufologists. And I know George Norrie is in there, and Stanton Friedman. Uh-huh. I recognize quite a few of them. And if you buy the CD inside, it has a map that's numbered. 
and tells you who's who in each spot. And I'm just up in the left corner below Neil Young, and uh, it's it's really quite an interesting work, and I really hope it sells well. And, um, you know, it would be perfect for a vinyl album release also. Yeah, and yeah, you're kind of wedged in there with uh, next to Linda Moulton Howe and uh, underneath Rod Serling. And we had oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, Nick Parisi and yeah, his uh, discussion about his uh, new biography of Rod Serling back in the fall. So, yeah, you know, there's kind of like another, uh, you know, co- connection that uh, we have to uh, some of the people on uh, this uh, CD cover. There's like uh, Betty and Barney Hill and Dennis Stone, you know, the owner of America Stonehenge, uh, knew uh, Betty. So, and, you know, you were just talking with George Norrie, what, uh, last week or two weeks ago. Yeah, that was right there in the coast center. to coast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Mark, the, the cover people have been emailing me that saw the cover because I sent a lot of MP3s with the cover out to mm-hmm. people, and people have been emailing me. They're almost like playing a game now. Who's who's this guy and who's that guy? And, you know, because they don't have the cover with the little map inside that tells you who everybody is. So everybody is emailing me about who they discovered in there. And uh, the black guy that's kind of in an Egyptian-looking outfit that's below the pyramid is Roland Kirk, Rashan. And a lot of people were trying to figure out who that was. So... It's neat that, uh, you know, it's educating people as to who all of these people are. And uh, you get a great deal of music. And as you were mentioning to Joanna, it's all not music that you would say, oh, that's a space-related song. Some of it's almost like classical or jazz instrumentals even. But the artists like John Martin claim they were inspired, you know, by either a, a sighting or s- something extraterrestrial. And yeah, you know, people may not understand why Jimi Hendrix is uh, almost in the center of the uh, CD cover. Um, you know a little bit about you know, well, he why claimed he would be. He, yeah, yeah. He claimed he was from, you know, uh, that he felt he was from another planet. And um, I, I knew you were mentioning Michael Luckman, who was a friend of mine that wrote the book Alien Rock Extraterrestrial Connection. And he had all of these rock stars, even Elvis Presley, and mentioned people in the book that had been influenced by 
ETs or UFOs, and he knew that um, I knew a lot of the people that were in the Jimi Hendrix movie, Rainbow Bridge, that was shot on Maui in 1970. And uh, the people I interviewed said that they were going through Haleakala Crater with the crew, and they had the camera, big, you know, movie camera, and the tripod on the back of a burrow. And they were trekking through the floor of the crater. There's a trail there. And they were doing a little filming, and they stopped and put the camera away. And as soon as he put the camera away, this silver disc, everybody saw it. There must have been 18 people that saw this, came down, and it was in broad daylight. And Jimmy saw it, and he walked out into this, uh, you know, like off the trail. It's like the gray cinder, lava cinder, and opened his arms and said, Welcome, Space Brothers. And it hovered there for a minute or so, and Chuck Wine, the producer, was trying to get the camera off of the burrow and up on the tripod. And just as he got it about set up to film, the saucer shot straight up and disappeared. And um, we went over there and uh, in 2014 and interviewed on video a lot of the people that still live there that were in the movie with Jimi Hendrix and it was interesting the stories they had to tell and uh, we put that together as Rainbow Bridge revisited it and uh, that you can buy on DVD with an audio track And one of the bands that was in the movie, The Space Patrol, with Leslie Potts, has a song. It's a two-CD set also. It's a DVD documentary and a CD, and it's called Rainbow Bridge Revisited. And you can get that through my website also at MerleFankhauser.com. So, yeah, Jimi Hendrix was a big part, I think, of, you know, the first connection with music and UFOs. And, you know, I think it's appropriate that he's there on the center of the cover. Right. Okay. That's a fascinating story. And, you know, just just to go back to what you were saying um, before we start talking about uh Jimmy, um, yeah, there are a number of variety of genres on this CD that you know, would appeal to so many listeners. Uh, you get um, you know a little bit of like heavy metal, uh, just all. Uh, there was one piano. Yeah, piano, song. solo, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, Joanna's, uh, uh, like, like techno pop songs, right. uh, very catchy. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, uh, and 
on your uh, radio show, you've really been playing uh, Gary Williams' song a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's just a, a good, just a good rock song. Um, you know, what is it about that song that really interests you? Well, the thing is, on my song, Calling from a Star, I'm actually, that was inspired, like I've told the story before, uh, from a sighting that I had with my band Moo at the top of Haleakala Crater in 1974. And, uh, you know, the song, after we had this sighting, the song just came out of me in 15 minutes, like it was downloaded, and I had a reel-to-reel tape recorder in our house on Haiku, Maui, and as soon as we got home from seeing the sighting, I could tell something was going to come out, and I just turned on the tape recorder, picked up my guitar, and sang it into the tape recorder so I wouldn't lose it. Gary Williams' song is about a sighting also, and it's very similar, you know, in the way it just came to him after having this sighting and uh, the thing about the album mark that that is a little difficult uh it has like you said so many genres of music that not all stations will play it so what i've been doing i have about a hot list of about 350 stations that play me all the time so i know what kind of format they have so i took the songs like my calling from a star gary williams song big white triangle and then dougie dignan's song another good thought and a few other ones uh the other one is by mike oram that's starting to get more play so i targeted those stations that i knew would play that kind of music. Now, the other stuff, like you mentioned, there is a almost classical piano solo that's very beautiful uh-huh. and some woodwind songs, but those need to be targeted to those kind of stations that would play that because if I sent those to a regular, you know, pop rock or classic rock station, they wouldn't play them. So that's what's going to have to be done. And because I have, like I said, these 350 stations that I know what their format is, I spent several weeks sending them emails, and then I tell them if they would like a CD to let me know. So I've made probably, I've made at least 50 CDs myself, and then Joanna made a lot and sent me some. And I've gone through uh, 75 CDs that I've sent to radio so far. And uh, I'm going to make another batch next week because now I have more DJs that would prefer a CD and also... I've sent it to magazines and newspapers to be reviewed, and they all want the physical CD, you know, so they can uh-huh. reprint a picture of the cover and they can review all of the music. So I imagine here in the next month 
there's going to be some good press coming out in magazines and news print. So I'm continually working it. And uh, the global show that I do the first Tuesday of every month with Bill Forte that's up on uh, YouTube, uh, we just did a show where we played quite a few of the songs off of Eclectia, and I'm starting to get, you know, really good emails from it and people wanting to buy the CD. So the other thing that could happen, because she's trying to do it all on her own, on her own label, is for me to go down to L.A. and see if I can find a label that would like to take it over and distribute it. Okay, so uh, that's the next phase. Yeah, but right oh, now, oh, like yes. she said on your show Sunday, they can get an electronic copy from Amazon and just all sorts of online places. But, you know, a lot of people, especially the collectors, and I deal with a lot of collectors because they have all my older 60s music they want that physical copy, and they usually want it signed. So, you know, we got to get those physical copies mm-hmm. going out there. Yeah, it's I, – I really do enjoy it. And uh, I think it's track 14, Ken Parsons' Ocean Call. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, uh, what instrument is – Playing on that—that it, that, it's really such a unique sound. I—I'm I, not sure what that is. The synthesizer. I, I think it's some sort of a synthesizer, Mark. You're right. Yeah. He—he—he uh, he, he, really does. Uh, what? He, it, it's really some very interesting um, ambient music. Is that the right word? Yeah. 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 It, it's he he I I I was that's one track that, that just you know just kind of just takes you away for uh, two or three minutes and uh, I I I really like that one too. But yeah. when it but you, your uh, contribution is you know the lead off song uh, to you know the near nearly forty tracks. On the, the CD, or, or it's like what twenty uh, uh, music tracks and almost nearly the same number of uh, follow-up interviews. But uh, you're the lead-off musical track, uh, call, and it's calling from a star. And you know this. Version is different from the one that appears on your, uh, you know, the Man from Moo CD. Uh, you know, uh, tell us a little bit about you know the changes. You know, did did you re-record it or uh, you know what was well, the process? What happened? I like I said, I had that sighting at the top of Haleakala Crater. And that was in 1974. And then I went down to the house, 
recorded the rough demo so I wouldn't forget it because when these songs come through like that, if you don't record it or write it down, but it's best to have a recording so you have that original feeling to go back to, uh, you can lose it. It'll, you know, it'll just go away. So I had that reel-to-reel tape, and my band Moo was living on the island at the time, and uh, we did a version of it and a slower version in 1974, because the engineer for uh, Quicksilver Messenger Service lived on the island, and he had some leftover equipment from recording their Just for Love album that he recorded in Hawaii. And he was real good at, uh, you know, just making things to make the sound good. For instance, on Quicksilver's album, he needed a echo-type sound. And he didn't have any echo chamber or anything in this house that they rented that they sent the studio up on in on Oahu. So I thought this was ingenious. He took garden hose and put a microphone and a speaker in one end. And the distance it had to travel uh, with Dino Valeni's voice is what gave it that odd echo sound. So we had this rough demo, and Moo recorded a slow version, and that was in 1974, and Barry set his equipment up in our house, and we recorded a whole album there that's actually come out, you know, years later on various different foreign and domestic labels. So uh, after my band... Moo broke up, uh, I came to L.A., and in 1978, I went into a professional studio in Hollywood with Gary Malabar, the drummer from Steve Miller's band, Ben Benet on guitar, who had done some work with Steely Dan and Emerson Lake and Palmer, and uh, Colin Cameron on bass, who had a great studio bass player that played on so many hit records, and Bill Como, who played on a lot of Kim Carnes stuff on piano and synthesizer, and Peter Noon from Herman's Hermits came in and doubled my voice just on the choruses in the background, and we laid down this <laughs> really smoking track, and uh, we... We mastered it in in three takes, and it was just perfect. And everybody said, oh, no, don't try for another one. It's great the way it is. And it came out near the end of 1978 on a 45 record. And it got on a lot of stations and got played and sold pretty good. But it wasn't on an album or anything. And... um, You know, it ended up uh, when my 1976 Maui album uh, was recorded. uh, Later, in 1991 or two, about it came. The Maui album came out on CD, and they put "Calling from a Star" 
on the first version of it on that album on the CD. So that was the first time it came out on CD and it started getting more play again. And uh, then you go up to 2003 and a station uh, in WAIF in Cincinnati heard the song and when the Columbia space shuttle blew up, remember that? Mm-hmm. In right. space? WAIF started playing it as a tribute to the Columbia Space Shuttle astronauts. Other stations heard it. They started writing me and emailing me, calling the old uh, record, requesting copies of it, and all of a sudden it had a new life, and it was on 500 stations again. I got a letter from NASA because everybody was announcing that it was a tribute to the Columbia Space Shuttle astronauts. And I got a letter and a card, which I kept. I still have it in a scrapbook from NASA thanking me for, you know, doing the song and having it be a tribute. And then... Oh, gosh, I think it was only two or three weeks later. uh, I think uh, the label sent a copy to the White House. I got a letter and a card of appreciation from the White House, from George W. Bush. So I, I... just thought of that today that I'd never told you that because I I didn't know that yeah so much stuff happens that I I just forget about it and so that song keeps having a new life all the time then uh, the producer William E. McEwen who discovered uh, the nitty gritty dirt band the Allman Brothers and produced a lot of Steve Martin's movies and managed him He produced, uh, in 2000, my Return to Moo album. And he heard Calling from a Star. And he said, oh, my gosh, what a song. He says, that sounds like it should have won a Grammy, you know. I said, well, gee, thank you, Bill. And he said, let's just take that original track, because I had the original 16-track master, and just do a remix on it. And would you mind if I added some more deep space sounds at the beginning? I said, well, let's try it. So we did it. And uh, we already got the deal with a Japanese company, a German company, and uh, Sundays in New York to put the CD out. And there wasn't enough room to put Calling from a Star on that particular cd so it sat on the shelf for a few more years and then all of a sudden i got an offer to do songs some more songs that i'd written about the lost continent of moo and they wanted to call it the man from moo and so i played that new version that bill and i bill McEwen, put together and they said, yeah, we want to use that. So 
That was on the man from Moo. That's the one that you mentioned. And so now, here it is again. That version is the lead song on Eclectia. And I was honored that Joanne and, and Doug Dignan wanted to use that as the beginning, and she gives it a nice intro. And here again, it's the last count. I think we were on about 220 stations with that song. And then I think a Big White Triangle, uh, Doug Dignan's Another Good Thought, and Mike Oram's song, Travelers, they're up there somewhere in 80 or 90 stations playing it. And it actually, you know, just came out in January. I heard Joanne say it came out in November, but it really wasn't available. What she meant to say was they finished mastering it. So Why don't we take a listen to it, Merle? Okay, Calling from a Star yep. from Eclectia. Here you are.
That's a really intense song, Merle. Yeah, it's 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 amazing, Mark, that it's had so many lives now, going clear back, you know, to the first 45 vinyl record coming out in 1978, and those are collectors' items. Now I've heard of people paying a hundred bucks for one. It's got a picture sleeve on it with a picture of me, and then you know, clear up to when it came out on a CD, I think, in 1992. And then, you know, again uh, into 2000 uh, on the Man from Moo CD and now on Eclectia being used as a tribute for the Columbia Space Shuttle astronauts. I mean... (laughs) I never imagined, and if I could real quick, Mark, tell the story about the sighting of the UFO that inspired the song. Uh, Sure, go ahead. You you know all this. I've told it to you before, but uh, my dad was a flight instructor and a charter pilot, and I lived on several airports where he had flight schools, and he taught me to fly a Piper Cub when I was only 14 years old. And we we lived uh, for a while on a glider port that he ran, and I got to solo a Schweitzer 126 glider solo by myself, which was really something. And I was always interested in aviation, and he thought I would end up being, you know, an aeronautical engineer or something. But even when I was very young, 14, 15, I was always wondering about UFOs. Were they real? And I asked him once, and he said, oh, yeah, it, you know, it, it, the universe is too big for us to be the only beings in it. And um, I read all the books I could find on it, Project Blue Book, and I was always looking for a UFO, a flying saucer. And I never saw one till I moved to Maui in 1973, and we went to the top of the crater in 74 to watch the sun go down. And there was a group of tourists there. There's a parking lot and a viewing area that looks into the floor of the crater at 10,500 feet. And the sun went down, and everybody was saying, oh, how beautiful. And just as the sun went down, this blue pulsating light flew right over the floor of the crater and kind of lit up the bottom of the crater a little bit. And about 20 or 30 seconds later, two smaller ones came out of it and went up in the air above it, and they started shining a beam from one to the next that formed a tetrahedron, an inverted pyramid. And there was an older gentleman that was in the Navy in the Second World War, and he and his wife were watching this, and he goes, wow. He said, all my years with everything I've seen, I never saw anything like that. And we just stood there spellbound. I think it had to be a good three or four minutes at least. And then the two smaller ones went back into the big one 
and it shot straight up in an instant and disappeared. And uh, Uh I didn't think about music or anything. I was just awestruck, and I was thinking, I finally saw one. I finally saw one. So we drove down the mountain to our house in Haiku, and I got that feeling, you know, that something was going to come out, and I turned on the reel-to-reel tape recorder, and there it was, calling from a star, and I remember sitting there in the living room of the house listening to what I'd recorded, just amazed. Uh, You know, it was just me and an acoustic guitar, but I was hearing all of those instruments that were in the final recording that you just played in my mind. So when I went to L.A. in 78 and recorded it, I gave all of the, uh, we played the demo, and then I gave all of the, the musicians, the notation, the ideas of what I had, you know, for the rest of the song. And we finished it off, and after the single was done and released, I went back to Maui with a film crew, went top of the crater, and filmed with 16-millimeter film cameras, because there wasn't video yet, uh, me doing Calling from a Star. And that's out on YouTube. If you go to YouTube and type in Merle Fankhauser calling from a star, you'll see it. And the interesting thing, Mark, it was sent out to some TV stations. We got play in uh, L.A., San Francisco, here on the Central Coast, and a couple of places on the East Coast. And I don't know if you remember this, but... TV back then used these big three-quarter-inch umatic tapes. It looked like a VHS, but much bigger. And I forget how many copies of that we made and uh, sent them out to these TV stations. So back then in 78, it did get some television airplay, and now the video is up at YouTube. Well, you just mentioned that the sighting you saw the uh, UFO uh, it split apart, then it came together and you know formed a tetrahedron, and uh, uh, Gary Williams in his interview after his song he discusses. The craft he saw was a, a big white triangle. Uh, in the uh, letter to uh, President uh, Carter, there was a discussion about a bell-shaped uh, a craft. So just in this one CD, we have uh, varying views of the different uh, crafts. But do we know anything about you know, the variety of shapes? You know, what, what does that mean? Are they uh, carrying different you know, types of um, ETs? Well, what people have 
thought uh, that some of them are like scout ships that came from a bigger mothership okay. that's maybe hovering somewhere that you don't see. And there has been some of these delta-shaped triangle ships that have been seen. I never heard of a white one, but, you know, they could be, or that could have been the force field that it was making around it. I've heard of of the dark ones, like uh, out here at uh, Lancaster at Plant 42, you know, where they made the B-1 bomber, a delta-shaped airplane that's like a primer color, and people have seen that out there and mistook it for a UFO, but it's really one of ours. So it's hard to say what that big white triangle was that he saw, but the bell-shaped things, too, they think are like little scout things that come out from a bigger ship. I've heard people and, you know, aeronautical people mention that before, that that's that's what they thought. And I know around Rendlesham Air Force Base in England, there was a lot of Delta craft seen. And I think that was even on an episode of uh, the TV show Ancient Aliens that a craft landed in the forest near this Rendlesham Air Force Base and some soldiers went out to see it. And it landed in this little meadow and they saw it sitting there, and I think when they approached it, it took off and flew away. So, you know, it's anybody's guess what these different configurations are from a saucer shape to a triangle shape or the bell-shaped ones. And uh, it's interesting to me that uh, in Hawaii, there's, you know, books about this. Going back into the 1800s, the Hawaiians saw, uh, they couldn't tell what they were. They they looked bell-shaped, and uh, they were coming out of the crater and going into the ocean. So there's been this thing about, you know, USOs going way back that, you know, they're undersea huh. objects. And, um, you know, uh, <laughs> I hope at some point it, it gets let out more to the public <clears throat> what all these are and what we're actually seeing. Uh, uh, the USOs is an interesting subject. You know, if the do a show on that but when yeah you know, you're singing calling from a star and and writing it um you know, it sounds like there's like some kind of message you, know, you might be implying that there's a message you're hearing like a frequency or something coming to you from the star or some uh, being, and you also have that in your signals from Malibu uh, CD and you know the uh, uh, title track as well as the song "Messages from the Dome." Uh, 
are musicians more in tune to that kind of phenomenon? Well, or is it just you, or you know, maybe a few other you know, select people? What, what, what's your take on that? Well, I don't know. Like I've told you the story about my meeting with John Lennon at Harry Nelson's house at a party back in the 70s, and I got to talk to him alone at this party for a few minutes after I'd sang him my song, well, I sang the whole group On Our Way to Hana, which was about seeing two UFOs uh, driving on the winding road through the jungle to the village of Hana on Maui. And he said, isn't songwriting interesting? Uh, he said, I didn't write any of those songs in the Beatles. They were just given to me. And I went, what? Uh-huh. And uh, he he said the same thing that happened to me, that um, you get this feeling and you know something's going to come out and you better have a little tape recorder or something to record it because somebody can start talking to you or you hear another music coming out of a radio and it erases what's in your mind. So you got to get it down real quick before it goes away. And he said it comes from somewhere else. And he had a what he called his muse. He felt scented to him and he called it automatic writing. And that kind of hits the nail on the head for me because this has been happening to me even when I was writing instrumental surf music when I was 17 years old. I never thought it was coming from UFOs or anything. I just thought, oh, there's another another good song, you know. And it was the same way. I would have to record it, you know, in, on a demo or something before I got in the studio to record it so I wouldn't forget it. And uh, that was happening all the time. And I never thought till I wrote that song, Calling from a Star, even then I didn't think, well, maybe that object was uh, sending this to me. I didn't think that at the time. I just thought, okay, I'm inspired by this UFO, and I've written this song. And uh, then when people like Michael Luckman started talking to me and telling me about all these other people that were inspired by UFOs and that he felt this connection to the music, and then I recorded with Mike Pender of the Moody Blues years ago. That was in the late 70s also, at his studio he had in Malibu and we had a discussion about you know how he felt the music he didn't say then that it came from UFOs or anything he said it it comes from somewhere and um i remember we had that little discussion and then Michael actually came to Maui and did a concert Uh, with me and my band on the beach there. And he was inspired by the things that people were telling him about UFOs. And I think I showed him some pictures of my 
ruins that were pre-Hawaiian that were believed to be from the lost continent of Mu, and come to find out he went back uh, to his studio in Malibu and wrote a song about all of that. And that's on a, a solo album that Mike Pender of the Moody Blues did. I forget the title of the album now, but it's interesting, Mark, that I never put the correlation together, uh, you know, that I was being downloaded something. And then uh-huh. it really got me when Michael Luckman was instrumental in sending me those signals that were picked up by the old Army operator, radio uh-huh. operator, out in the ocean in Malibu. And Michael told him, you better send these to Merle Fankhauser. So the the radio expert sent them to me, and I put it on in my studio, and I immediately heard this melody, picked up my guitar. I turned on the click track on the drum machine just to have it be in time. And the only way I can explain it, it, it was almost like I reverted back to a 60s instrumental surf song, but a la 60s James Bond theme music, that low sort of tone. And that was Signals from Malibu, and I put the signals in the song. And then when I finished that, I realized I had about four minutes more of signals that I didn't use So I went out in the studio and sat down at the piano, and I'm not a really good piano player. I'm adequate, and I can play parts on synthesizers. And so I put on the headphones, had the signals coming into my headphones, and I thought I'd better hit record just in case. I don't even remember what I was playing. I just know I started out in E minor and went to to some diminished chords and played this simple piano part. And um, actually, uh, I was duplicating a part that was on another song I had played years earlier and didn't even realize it till I finished. And then I brought the band in and uh, we finished putting all the rest of the parts to the two songs. Signals from Malibu was the first one, and the second one was Messages from the Dome. And we finished those, and I got pictures of that anomaly that's underwater there in Malibu that the radio operator had no idea was even out there he had a range-finding device and knew that these signals were coming from three miles out in the ocean. He lived up in the hill there, not too far from where Michael Pinder had his studio, actually. And uh, he he was asking around town, you know, if there was submarine activity or what was going on, and he ran into an old... Shumash Indian, who was a security guard at one of the uh, um, the uh, casinos out there, and he said, "Well, you know, there's a building out there, about 
700 feet underwater that has pillars and a big opening. And he said, our tribe has known about that for a 1,000 years. And he said, it was built by the people that were here before us. And when the ocean level was down lower, there's writings that tell about the Indians using it as a pier to fish off of. So I found all of that really very interesting. So I sent the two songs to my label in England, Gonzo Multimedia, and the head of the company called me back immediately and said, brilliant, brilliant, we got to put this out. Do you have more? We'd like to put a whole album out. So within a month, I wrote a bunch of, well, I would call them uh, kind of space rock, surfy, <laughs> instrumental songs and sent them to them, and they put out the CD, Signals from Malibu, in 2014. I started sending copies to my radio stations here. It got a lot of play in Europe. And the interesting thing, which I've told you before, but these listeners are probably new, um, at the end of Signals from Malibu and at the end of the messages from the Dome, I brought the signals, the radio signals, up louder in the mix. And the radio operator, he knew Army, Navy, you know, radio code, and he said this was like nothing he'd ever heard. And um, what started happening was when it would reach the end of messages from the dome, it started shutting down the mixing boards at certain radio stations. It did it to one in Sacramento. It did it to one uh, Ken Hudnall's uh, show in Austin, Texas. It did it to Mac Maloney's station near Boston. And if I'm not mistaken, Joanna's station had a problem with it also. And what it turned out, it only affected newer digital mixing boards. The older stations, it still had analog uh, broadcast boards. It didn't affect. So I have a friend that's one of the top engineers at George Lucas's Skywalker Ranch, Bob Edwards, and I sent these signals to him. I said, Bob, what's going on here? And I told him what was happening. So he analyzed it, put it through a spectrometer and an oscilloscope, and he said, well, there's actually three signals there. There's a lower carrier signal that sounds like a train on railroad tracks. Then in the middle... There's the actual message that it's sending. And he said at that part where it's turning off the mixing boards, there's a high-pitched signal that's not audible to human ears there. And he said that's where the problem is coming. So still, nobody has figured out what these sig signals are or what they're saying. And it's still a mystery. But uh, the CD's still out there, and it's still getting played and and uh, sales. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, 
Barbara, how about if we hear signals from Malibu and hopefully we aren't uh, knocked off the air? Well, that one doesn't okay. do it. It's messages from the dome near oh, okay. the end where it sounds like a, a, a high-pitched lady's voice yodeling. And I've played it on all kinds of machines and played it on the radio station I'm here uh, you know, on the Central Coast every Friday, and Bill Forte played it on his uh, stuff, and he didn't. We didn't have any problem. <laughs> okay. So let's, okay. Let's well, keep our fing- fingers. Well, crossed here in, comes signals you know. then. Okay. Okay.
Uh, Barbara, what do you think of the underwater sounds? Those weren't uh, whales. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't know how you explain those uh, sounds. I. Well, Emmett, the radio expert, didn't either. He went, what is this? And how he got those, Mark, is he still, you know, liked to fool around with radios and ham radio. And he was talking to somebody in Australia one night. And when they finished talking, he dialed off the frequency a little bit and picked that up and went, what is this? So he recorded it into the computer, and uh, that's what he got. I think it was about, oh, maybe six and a half minutes of of that, and uh, he sent them to me, you know, on Michael Luckman's recommendation. And uh, it's very interesting, and, and I think I told you before I was on Dr. Bob Hieronymus's show mm-hmm. when when yeah, this a years ago. Yeah, when this CD came out and he had the CD and he said, "Merle, I want to play you something and see what you think." And it was from the Billy Meyer recordings that are quite famous that were done in the early 70s uh in Sweden, I think, and uh, his dog was barking at what he said was a UFO hovering, and he started recording the sound that was coming out of it, and when Dr. Bob played that, it sounded exactly like those high-pitched sounds you heard in that song. They're a little clearer the signals are in messages from the dome, if you can play that one, because it's a mm-hmm. softer musically and the signals are louder. But he said, what do you think? And I went, oh, my gosh. It it was almost identical. And to wow. be honest, it, at first, I thought those signals were made you know, by us, because five miles up the coast from where this underwater anomaly is, is Point Magoo Naval Air Station. And I thought, oh, I think they're doing something out there. (laughs) But after I heard that, uh, I went, no, he couldn't have he would have had to have some way out synthesizer in 1970 that wasn't invented yet. And the other interesting thing is for years they'd been seeing lights going in and out of the water there. And I was on a station in San Luis Obispo. I was in the studio and we played these songs. It was on the Dave Congleton show and um, this lady called in and said, well, when I was a young girl, uh, my aunt and my mom, we lived in Malibu, and we used to go down to the beach every night and watch the lights going in out of the ocean. And so that had been going on since the 40s. Then when I was a teenager, I went down with a group of my surfing buddies, and we went surfing. 
at that same spot. And uh, when we got done, there was a group of local surfers there building a bonfire, and they said, oh, you guys ought to stick around and watch the lights go in and out of the water. And we went, nah, we got to get back up to Pismo Beach. So we got in the car, and my buddy was laughing. He's going, oh, they're seeing pelicans diving for fish because that's what they do up here. So I never gave it another thought until here all the way up in 2014. And now people are sending me things that they're filming with their cell phones. And um, Grant Cameron called me one day, and he was he was interested in coming out here and going down there with my video crew and just spending the night with the van and you know see if we catch anything. But the weather has been way too bad. We'll have to wait till summertime. But it's really something, Barb and and Mark. Uh, I still just, you know, almost can't believe it. It's like a movie I'm watching. <laughs> well, why don't we listen to messages from the dome? Oh, good idea. Okay.
Okay, we made it through the uh, critical spot. If you heard that <laughs> spot near the end where it's, ah, that's the spot where it usually uh, turned off. You know, it's mainly boards that are in a, a studio, you know, that's configured a certain way. And I remember one of them, they said, oh, we had the the latest and the greatest digital broadcast board. And the interesting thing was it erased all of the presets in the board, and they had to have text come back in and reprogram it. So, <laughs> yeah. And th- those were you know, the two main songs from your CD, Signals from Malibu, and, you know, just recent, uh, what was just last year, you, you had uh, one of your songs, Lila, from your Fabridocoli CD, uh, included in the movie Chappaquiddick. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that latest achievement? Yeah, that movie uh, came out um, last year. Um, I forget what month it was now. It might have been... Was it April? April, you're right, Mark. You got a good memory. (laughs) I got too many things going that I can't remember the dates. But yeah, it came out in April. And uh, Jody Freeman, Friedman, my... uh, music agent for putting soundtracks in uh, movies and TV got that for me. And because it was Chappaquiddick, the movie about uh, Ted Kennedy, uh, they wanted all period music from the 60s. -hmm. And that's a song I wrote and recorded in 1967. And it was on the album, vinyl album, that came out in that year called Fapper Dockley. And uh, it's ended up being one of the most valuable 60s albums and highly sought after uh, by collectors. And a sealed copy of it, uh, a DJ in Australia said he saw one go for $1,490. Uh, generally, uh, it was it's been known for years that a sealed original vinyl album was going for a thousand. And um, two people that heard me on uh, George Norrie's Coast to Coast uh, wanted uh, that album. Wanted to know if I had any vinyls of that left. I have one on the wall and and one in the closet and I have a oh one or two that my sister had that are open copies and uh, Sunday's music in I think it was 1995 they put it out on a CD and the CD sold very well and now um it's it's on uh, a label from Colorado, I think it is, Gear Fab Records. They reissued it on CD. 
But that album, Mark, is another amazing thing where songs from that album keep coming back in the limelight. A song on there called Supermarket was in the Thomas Pynchon novel, Inherent Vice, which they made a a movie of. And then in 2011, Tomorrow's Girl from that album was on a Grammy-nominated box CD set called Where the Action Is, L.A. Nuggets, and now Lila in Chappaquiddick. So that's pretty good. Three songs, you know, that came back after all those years from what I always thought was an obscure album, and I didn't find out till oh gosh, it must have been somewhere in the the late to mid-80s that it had become a, a collector's classic. Okay. Well, why, so, don't, we um, listen, why don't we listen to yeah. Lila then? Okay. Yeah. You guys are doing such a great job. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. 
You know, Merle, uh, did you have any idea that 50 years later you'd still be walking for your audiences? <laughs> no, Mark. I, it's amazing, you know, 50 years and almost 50 albums, counting all of the compilations and everything, you know, I had no idea. I remember some reviewer wrote a review and said, uh, Merle Fankhauser has uh, more albums or something. It was three times as many albums released as the Beatles and the Rolling Stones put together, which really surprised me. But I did want to say there is a video of Lila uh, on YouTube now under my name and uh, they were getting so many requests you know it, it's in the movie Chappaquiddick in a beach scene a lot of fans were emailing me and saying it wasn't loud enough it wasn't loud enough they played the whole song but it's you know in the background and then people were saying well we want to see you sing it and you know course i never did a video of it so we did one here in the tiki lounge uh set area and uh, i think it's got over a thousand views so far and i did want to mention mark uh signals from malibu and messages from the dome if you go type those in with my name they're on youtube also and there are photographs that people have sent me from Malibu, supposedly of things they filmed there that we put in that video. So uh, all, all of this that you're playing, there's videos on YouTube. And I thank you both for doing... This is going to be one of my favorite shows because, you know, we've got a lot of this music that we've played and uh, I've kind of, you know, told how they evolved in this mm-hmm. uh, show that we're doing tonight. Yeah, and you know, we need to ha- have an explanation for the title Fabridocally. Uh What does that mean? <laughs> yeah. People ask me that quite a bit too. Well, I uh, was living here in the 60s, and uh, I was playing with my band. This was after the impacts, my surf band had broken up. And uh, it was around 1966, and we were playing in a little nightclub in Pismo Beach. And it was just right at the beginning, you know, of the psychedelic and folk rock era and uh, we didn't have a name for the band for a while people were just calling us Merle and the boys you know so I sat down at the table one night I remember before we started playing and I said guys we need a we need a name something more fitting with the times you know and I remember the drummer Dick Lee said yeah we need something psychedelic. And when he said that, I took out a pencil and I wrote it on a 
I think I wrote it on a napkin first. I took the first two letters of the last name of each person in the band, and I wrote down F.A. for Fankhauser first. Then I wrote down P.A.R. because we had a bass player at the time whose last name was Parrish, so I wrote P.A.R., and then Bill Dodd, who later went on to play with me in HMS Bounty, was the other guitar player. So I put down D.O. to represent Dodd, and the drummer was Dick Lee. So I put down K.L.Y., and I said, there it is, guys, Fapper Dockley. And they all looked at me like, wow. And then I think it was Bill that said, yeah, man, if that isn't psychedelic, I don't know what is. So we kept the name, and people were going, well, how do you pronounce that? And then I was writing more songs, and the uh, label that had put out some of the stuff that I did when I was living up in the desert in the Antelope Valley, Glen Records, uh, I had the band Merle and the Exiles after I uh, quit the Impacts. I moved over there for a while. And uh, I called him up and I said, we've got these new songs that we've written and we'd like to come up and record them. And he said, okay. So we went over, made the trip there, and I think we recorded three or four new songs. And he said, I want to put an album out on you anyway and I need more songs and then we went down to Gold Star recording where everybody from the Buffalo Springfield to the Birds and my band HMS Bounty later on recorded there and we recorded uh, I think that's where we recorded the music scene and one other I can't remember so we took them all to Glen. And then he called us up and he said, okay, I got the album all assembled and mastered. What are you boys calling the band now? And I told him, Fapper Dockley. <laughs> and he went, what? How in the blazes do you spell that? <laughs> so I spelled it for him over the phone and I even sent him a letter and, you know, wrote it out in the letter. I didn't want him to get it wrong. And I remember when we were down in L.A. recording, we went to a photography studio, and we wanted to look kind of wild, you know, and psychedelic looking. And we were just starting to grow our hair out. And we went in there, and we didn't have any costumes, and we were all going, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And uh, so the guy says, well, I've got some some old drapes and stuff back there in the storage room I'm not using. So we put those around us, and one guy had like an Indian blanket. So that wild and crazy picture on the back of the album, it, we look like a psychedelic tribe of lost Indians or something. And uh, the album came out, and I thought, well, yeah, the songs are nice, but I didn't really you know, pay much attention. And then later, about nine months later, I moved to Hollywood and we formed HMS Bounty and I got a deal with the big label, Uni Records, and started writing more 
kind of psychedelic folk rock, and I forgot all about Fapper Dockley. And then all of a sudden, a few years later, everybody was raving about that album and said it was a psychedelic folk rock masterpiece. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, there it is. It's still going. And, Roy, you just mentioned you know, so, some big names like you know Buffalo Springfield, and it was really popular in the uh, later '60s, and you know, you had a few big names uh, come out of that band. And you know, one of the uh, bands that was uh, emerging around the same time was uh, Spirit and you had a a really long collaboration with Ed uh, Cassidy. Uh, Do you want to tell us a little bit about what Ed Ed was like? Oh, yeah. a, a, A friend and a drummer. He was a great guy, Mark, and I'm sorry we lost him in 2012. He passed away. But the interesting thing, Ed and I briefly met. We think it was at the Santa Monica Civic Center. They would have these all-day-long afternoon into-the-night concerts with like six or seven bands. And I think HMS Bounty was on the bill. And Cass and I just kind of met walking from the dressing room. He was coming off the stage, and we were going on, and we just gave each other a nod. And I said something like, nice set, and he went, thanks. And that was it. And so we played our set. And then, uh, gosh, trying to think what year it was. I think it was 1990. I was doing the satellite television show called California Music that was on 150 stations across the United States. And I was digging up all these people from the 60s that I'd known and played with, like Sky Saxon from The Seeds and Nicky Hopkins that played on the Beatles and Stones records was on the show. And an agent that was helping me book some people, and he said, hey, uh, I do some bookings for Spirit, and Ed Cassidy and Randy California, the guitar player, uh, both have seen your show, and they really like it, and they think it's really laid back and cool because I would interview people, and then we would jam together, or they would do, you know, whatever their latest song was an album or you know that they had out that they were pushing and maybe do a couple of songs from it and uh so Cassidy walked on the set and we immediately hit it off and he said wow we should get together and and record some music together and I said yeah you want to play some concerts too he said oh that would be great And it just happened at that time, Spirit was kind of in a lull and wasn't doing much. And Cass came over to my house here on the 
Central Coast, and he went, wow, this is really a nice area. I like it here, and it's laid back and not too congested. And uh, we started recording together, and he looked around for a house, found a nice little house that he rented, and he moved from Ojai. That's where he was living. And then uh, uh, Cass said, gosh, Randy, uh, you know, you ought to come up here and and meet Merle. And so he came up and met me, and I had him on the TV show. And then uh, I ended up playing some slide and I think bass on one of their last albums called California Blues. And we just all became buddies and had planned to do more. In fact, we were even going to go to Europe and do a tour, and our first stop was going to be Paris, and that was in 1997, and uh, Randy drowned in Hawaii, and so we didn't do that, but previous to that, Cassidy and I had recorded a album called On the Blue Road that a subsidiary of Motown had released, D-Town Records, on CD, and it sold quite well. And then later, we did a second album called Further On Up the Road. I think that was 98. And um, that's out on a, a two-CD set. It's out on several labels in Europe as two different albums. But it's also out on a two-CD set on Gonzo Multimedia, the label from the U.K., and then it was bootlegged on an Italian label, and they also put it out on a double vinyl LP, which was beautiful. And Cassidy had so much wisdom, Mark. I learned so much from him. I mean, he was still playing drums at 89, And somewhere in his mid-80s, he recorded the last song that we wrote together. He liked these kind of big band jazzy songs called Out on the Town. And that's on a newer album uh, called Tiki Lounge Live. And it was a lot of recordings done here on my Tiki Lounge TV show set, which has been on the air now for 18 years. I can't believe why, it. Why don't we why don't we listen to that one? You have that yep. one, Barb? I have yes. that one. Oh my gosh. You're too good.
Merle, that was recorded on the Tiki Lounge set? Yeah, on the stage that you see. If you go, you know, on the on uh, YouTube, there's a number of the Tiki Lounge TV shows that are up there at YouTube. If you just type in my name and Tiki Lounge, I think there's a dozen shows. But, you know, Ed Cassidy started out in big band and swing music in the 40s, and he loved mm-hmm. that, you know. So uh, he and I both kind of wrote the melodies and for this, but it was really his baby, and uh, that was the last song he recorded before he passed away, and I'm so glad we got it down, you know, before he started playing rock and roll, that's what he did, he was playing with big bands. Okay, and and we're, uh, what, we're down to down 12 minutes or so, yeah. and, and we still need to uh, talk about your autobiography that came out uh, you know, two or three years ago. Um, it, it, you know, your autobiography is entitled uh, Calling from a Star, and you know, what did you uh, learn about yourself by writing your autobiography? Well, my mother was still alive when I started on it. It took me several years to finish because I would, you know, do it in starts and stops because I'd have to go out and play or travel somewhere or do a TV show or recording. And I kept going, i got to get back to the book, you know. And uh, the hardest thing, Mark, was trying to figure out dates when things happened. And thanks to my dear, wonderful mother, she had kept magazine and newspaper clippings going clear back to 1962. And she'd go, oh, remember the time you guys, uh, you boys did this and you played that and, uh, you know, you went over to Las Vegas? And I go, yeah, what year was that? And She'd say, go in the closet up on that top shelf, and there's a box there with uh, a lot of newspaper clippings and magazines that I kept. And that's what saved me because I was having a hard time. I could remember certain stories, but I wanted to, you know, have them chronologically in the book. And uh, there they were, dated and and everything. And, you know, I could glean some of the information from an old yellowed newspaper article. And uh, I, I wanted it to be complete and accurate. And a lot of other mm-hmm. people that I respected and publishers said, don't whitewash it. In other words, don't make it so saccharine sweet tell the truth so I pretty much told the truth I told the whole story (laughs) the way it was and uh, I'm glad I did because uh, people have you know written me and told me how much they liked it and having all of that inside info in there and I almost made it on the New York Times bestseller list uh, 
you only had to sell 5,000 copies and have them review it. And if they liked it, they'd put it on the new on the bestseller list. Well, I missed selling 5,000 by a certain date, and I only needed, I think it was something like 190 more. <laughs> if I knew that, I would have bought that 190 myself. <laughs> but what I learned was, man, how did I do all of that was the first thing I thought, you know, when I read it myself and got outside of it like it was somebody else's book that I was reading. I was just astonished that I, you know, was able to to do all of what I did and had the energy to do it. And then the fact that I'm still going and so many of the people, you know, that I played with and knew, including most of the impacts, they've all passed away now. And here I am still doing it and having record companies still releasing my music. And I'm just very thankful and happy that I can keep doing what I love. What do you attribute your longevity in such a competitive market to? Well, as far as my longevity and being able to have enough energy to keep doing it, I think when I moved to Maui in 1973, because the city was starting to wear on me, you know, and it's too much of a fast pace, and I, I moved over there, and that slowed things down, and it gave me a new burst of inspiration. And that's when I got into, you know, like the Maui album that's more of a spiritual uh, kind of a folk rock. Some people say it's almost a new style of music. I met one of the high lamas from Tibet and took refuge with him and meditated, and he gave me the name Lodru Jansau, which translated means Oceans of Intelligence, which I wrote a song about. And uh, I think changing my environment, Mark, and coming up with a, a completely different style of music than what I was doing in Los Angeles, if I would have stayed there, I probably would have kept doing rock and roll and, you know, blues rock. And, you know, I've always been able to change styles and go on to another style and not worry about it. Some people get into one style and it's like they're put in a bag and that's all they do. And, uh, I I haven't done that. I've kept evolving, and I mm -hmm. think I, I still am evolving, and I think that's what keeps me fresh because you're not going to hear the same thing recycled. Okay. Hey, uh, um, Merle, how about if you know we, yeah, you, know, you give everyone you know, 
your contact information, where to buy your CDs, uh, website, and you know we could just play uh, Tomorrow's Girl on, on the way as we wrap up the show. Just let it play through till we get cut off at the end of the show. Oh, that sounds great, Mark. Yeah, that was the Grammy-nominated uh, song that was on the Warner Rhino box set, Where the Action Is, L.A. Nuggets, 1965-68. to 68 was Tomorrow's Girl, and I did that on KHJ-TV in uh, 1966, I think it was, in L.A., and my website is merlefankhauser.com, M-E-R-R-E-L-L-F-A-N-K-H-A-U-S-E-R.com. And my email is merle at merlefankhauser.com. And I can send anyone a catalog of all of the things I have to sell mail order, including my book, uh, The Calling from a Star, The Merle Fankhauser Story. So uh, it's all there, and uh, you can just email me and request a catalog or check out what's at the website. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. This has been a great show. We're going out with Tomorrow's Girl. This is wonderful, Barb and Mark. Thank you so much.